Welcome to this week's episode of the Life Profitability Podcast. I'm your host, Eddie Pinar. The reason this podcast exists is to answer one of the bigger questions that has popped up in my life in recent years. What drives the individuals that create things in this world? And how does that relate to the labels that they attach themselves, their identity, and more broadly, the life that they live? Every week on this podcast, I have a conversation with a fascinating guest, whether they're an entrepreneur, artist, musician, author, poet, or artisan, to learn more about how they live a life that is uniquely profitable. Today's conversation is with Elliot Pepper, who is an author of nine novels, where he bends and blends traditional genres to explore the intersection of technology and culture. He is also an independent strategy consultant, where he has worked with many Fortune 100 companies. How many of us can claim to do two jobs? much less two jobs that are seemingly so different. You'll want to hear how Elliot thinks about this. I wanted to host Elliot because his first book started me on a path of reading more fiction. And as his style evolved to include more science fiction content, I also started reading other science fiction books as a way to imagine and explore the future. In our conversation, we touch on the significance of intersections, how our ability to forget 99% of things that happen to us is a superpower, and why labels are probably not that important. One of the things that stuck with me about our conversation was how stories and storytelling isn't just limited to Eliot's writing or books, but it also seems to be the lens through which he views his whole life. Let's jump into this conversation with Eliot Pepper. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me on. It's good to be here. I'm going to jump straight in here, and the first question I have for you is, online you describe yourself as an independent strategy consultant and an author, and an author specifically that's published more than a book a year since 2014. Can you kind of take us through how you believe those two roles actually relate to each other? Is there any interplay there, or are they just completely separate? Yeah, there's actually a lot of interplay there and far more interplay than I ever knew sort of starting out. So the way to make sense of it is to understand how I started writing novels. So I had been working in startups for a few years as an early employee and then as a founder and then at a venture capital firm. And I saw how much human drama there is, right, when you're trying to build a company. There's so much at stake for everyone involved. You're working on a small team. Everybody knows each other. There are these, like, deep relationships forged. But those relationships can also break very dramatically. And most startups that fail, fail because the teams implode rather than because just the product sucked or something like that. And one thing I noticed, and this was actually, you know, this may have changed now in popular culture because we've had shows like HBO's Silicon Valley and things that have sort of popularized startup culture. But at the time, this was a back in 2011, 2012, I sort of saw this gap because I've always been a big reader. I, like since I was a child, I just loved being in the library. I, I loved reading. So I've always read a lot. And one thing that I found was a lot of the books that I read about startups were business books. And they were not always, but very often they were pretty dry, right? They were distilling lessons learned and like things like that. And I would read them and I, there was this gap between the things they talked about, which were accurate but incomplete, and my experience of just like actually working with people who were trying to build companies and have these dreams of having technology that actually impacts the world or changes the world, and then often those just like 
don't go anywhere, right? And things fall apart and all that stuff. And so my feeling was like, wow, this is such a rich canvas for human drama. Much of the books about this world miss that. Like they sort of miss the human experience of it. And so I thought it would be a really interesting place to explore in fiction because one of the beauties of novels is that rather than a memoir, say, which there's a lot of similarities between memoir and fiction, but you know, in memoir, you're writing about something that happened to you before, right? So you're writing from memory. But in novels, you have this magical aspect where because it's a made-up story you can be there in the character's mind and heart while the whole story is happening to them right and i thought that would be a really special lens through which to view the human experience of trying to be involved in a startup and so my very first novel was inspired by that so i i i couldn't find that book to read which is what I was just trying to honestly find. I wanted to read that novel and I couldn't find it. So I was like, well, if I can't find it, I'll give it a try and just try writing it. And I sat down and started typing and that became my first book. That first book became a trilogy. And then I was enjoying writing fiction so much that that has now kept going. So it wasn't that I started out with a dream of being an author or something like that. And I certainly didn't start it as a career decision of, you know, this is something I'm going to pursue. I started doing it because I just sort of wanted to solve my own problem. And then I started having so much fun with the act of writing that it's become a very big part of my life. And then over the course of multiple books, those first three books were about a startup going from garage to IPO and sort of getting sucked into this international financial conspiracy along the way. So there are these like thrillers. And then since then, my novels have sort of explored new territory. So some of them are near-term science fiction and, you know, they're, they sort of tackle different topics. So like very obviously those first books were informed by my other experiences, right? Like that what informed those books was having spent years working in startups. And ever since, what I've really learned is that basically when you write novels, your life is the material. So that means both that your emotional life is the material. So say you were trying to write a character who was, say you're like writing a mystery novel or a thriller and there's a serial killer and suddenly they're chasing your hero through a dark house or just some like really classic thing you'd see in a B movie and late night cable television. When you're writing a novel from that character's perspective, you have to reliably help the reader feel the fear that the character would feel in that situation. And so when I'm writing that kind of a scene, and my books are not really in that category, but that's sort of useful to, it's like a fun thing to think through live. I have to think about what would it feel like to be in that kind of a situation? And what are some of the situations in my own life where I've felt like panic and fear and how did that make me react how did that make me feel and that translates into the character right and so that's very true on the personal front but it's also true on the professional front basically since i started writing novels i've been splitting my time between writing and publishing fiction and working as a yeah as you mentioned like an independent consultant or a drop-in operator for companies to help build them and it really just is me trying to work with the most interesting people I can find to help solve interesting problems. So, uh, you know, I'm an interim operator, so it'll be like, okay, 
this seems like the big new thing that is on the horizon or that we have to tackle that we haven't hired a team to fix yet. So like, how are we gonna create a first pass solution and sort of improvise something that'll work well enough so that when we, then we can build structure and process around it and turn that into a whole new part of the business. So because those are the kinds of projects I work on, it actually uses many of the same mental muscles that writing science fiction does because you're trying to imagine a future and what it would take to get there, how the world will change, how the status quo is more fragile and flexible than we usually give it credit for. And so I often find that when I am working on projects here and there with founders or with companies, it's often a very useful and fruitful creative experience because I'm interacting with the world. I'm learning about their world. It's basically like they're paying me to do research <laughs> for, for future fiction, in a sense, because everything I learn about their perspective winds up informing my own thought process, which winds up informing my books. Gotcha. So, by the way, just going to comment there, you speak about your first book and you know, writing the book that you couldn't find. That is exactly what resonated for me. That's how I mm. found your writing as well, is... So, and I mean, for everyone listening, that was the Uncommon Stock trilogy, right? Um, which I, again, and I agree with you, and part of why that resonates with me and what I heard you say there as well it is, I think when we speak about business books, they always paint this very sequential kind of you know path mm -hmm. or blueprint which is just do these three things and you're going to achieve the desired outcome that we've pitched you on the front cover of the book whereas what i liked and what i've have enjoyed about your writing there is i mean you speak about exploring the human nature almost or those mm -hmm. kind of dynamics between people because those things can't be separated from those actual journeys, right? So even if you did follow exactly. the blueprint proposed by another book, those things are still interwoven into that experience and journey. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. No, that, that's a big piece of it. I mean, again, like one reason I love reading fiction as well as writing it is that I love big ideas. It's really fun to watch TED Talks. Like I quite enjoy reading good business books or good books that sort of have a strong thesis where you're like, oh, wow, this is a new way through which to view the world, like reading The Black Swan or things like that, right? And those are fascinating and intellectually, it's like pop rocks for my brain. But one thing I really love about fiction is that it is where those big ideas can intersect with the messiness of actually living a life, right? So it's one thing to have an intellectual takeaway. It's another thing to see how that actually influences something, someone's thinking or behavior with all the context and, and relationships that actually living through making decisions requires. So that was something I had a lot of fun with, with the Uncommon Stock books. And it's also something I really appreciate as a reader. Some of my favorite novels are books that have a lot of big ideas in them. But because they're a novel, they can't just describe an idea. They have to actually show that idea in practice and show what it means to people and why it matters to people. Yeah. And again, part of the resonance here is about two years ago, I got into poetry and started writing some of my own as well. And mm -hmm. for me... I like how you describe that messiness, where the medium accepts that messiness, where, mm -hmm. whereas my work as an entrepreneur probably has confines there. I probably need to be more pragmatic and I need to be clear about what I'm trying to communicate. Otherwise, mm -hmm. I'm not going to get that outcome. Whereas when the medium changes, the goal changes as well, or the opportunity changes as well, whereas it becomes a little bit more of an exploration. I thought I had here, as you were speaking about fiction, 
especially because I've been on this journey as well, where I also realized that my learning from nonfiction books became very limited. Mm. Um, I kept hearing similar things, doesn't matter how widely I read. And the thing that ultimately unlocked it for me was reading more fiction. One of the books that started this off for me was Siddhartha from Herman Hesse, which is all about a journey, right? And then, you know, from there, I kind of piggybacked on that. And I finally read The Alchemist as well, uh, which is yeah. obviously a, a very, very well-known book. And those books have had more of an impact on my journey since. I mean, and even listening to you saying something similar in terms of how you're writing, like I try to pull it up here and I you know, can't do it quickly because I can't multitask. But in your analog trilogy, like many of the things that your lead character, Dag, was it, that kind of goes through, I highlighted many of those things because uh. it resonated with me. It, it, it helped me explore those emotions, those experiences that I had not yet gained clarity or insight from. Uh. And I was actually wondering, and I'd love to hear your take on this, is I wonder whether kind of in 2020 and kind of onwards, the whether the way people learn, how we learn as human beings, will change where I kind of sense a shift in we want that takeaway. We want that ability to have a single takeaway from a book. It doesn't matter what book it is. Like we can't learn a whole textbook anymore. Like we can't <laughs> learn a 10 step process of things like, you know, whether it's just instant gratification or that kind of immediacy that we've become so used to. But I kind of sense that there's a different need in terms of how people are learning. And I kind of feel that fiction where the bulk of it is around the story is probably better suited to give people those takeaways, that little bits of inspiration or that little bits of clarity that creates a pivot point in their life when they're like, oh, I understand this now, like this illuminates a new path. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think you're you're right. I think there are a lot of sort of trends at work there. I, I think that the base truth, at least for me, that it, in my own life has been that stories are how humans make sense of the world. Like even if you think way back, right? So if you think about mythology, you know, anything you might've learned about in school, those were the stories people told each other around a campfire at night. And at base, our minds work in stories. Like you can read about Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky and their famous reimagining even what how economics should work because economists for so many decades treated everyone as just this like rational actor that was basically playing out one big algorithm. And like, that's just not how anyone behaves ever, right? So like everyone was missing the point. And one of the things that their work points to is how our minds are not clear, rational lenses that just show us an unfiltered reality. Our minds are filtering everything we perceive and interpreting everything we perceive all the time. And we turn them into stories. Our identities are the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. Our cultures are the stories we tell each other about us and about others. And so because we make sense of the world through story, it makes a lot of sense to me that stories help us make sense of the world. And so if you just are giving someone raw data or straight up information that is not packaged in a story, you can understand it, right? Like everyone can understand if you explain it clearly, but does it stick with them? Do they internalize it? Is it something that they're gonna remember a week from now, a month from now, a year from now? And the answer for most things is no, right? Like the things that actually break through that barrier that actually can change us, that can change how we think or how we see the world, 
I think overwhelmingly are things that are shaped like stories. <laughs> so say you have an idea or a message that you, you think is really important, that means something for you. That means that rather than simply articulating that idea over and over and over again, can you find stories or can you craft stories that show that idea in practice? You know, can you find the equivalent of a myth for your story, right? I mean, myths are the original memes. So that's where you need to be reaching for, right? And so for me, that's one of the reasons I find stories so fascinating because they access that piece about just how we are, like our, our biology, just how our minds work and how we think. And that also makes them fun. Like you, you mentioned Siddhartha and The Alchemist. Both of those books were very formative for me as well. And they really capture something very important about growth, right? About overcoming adversity and finding out who we are in the process. And that is an incredibly powerful truth for one human to be able to communicate to another through this very, very, very strange form of like, letters printed on a page, right? It's surreal that it has that level of virtual reality with it. That's interesting. So how much of the true Elliot, and whatever way you want to define true Elliot here, but how much of that kind of manifests in the stories that you tell? I mean, again, the sort of the way that I think about it is that my life is the material from where I mine for insights, basically. And I think that there's a lot in the creative process of writing fiction that's about basically recombination. So, you know, like I have a little note. I use a, a program called Ulysses on my phone and I have like a little notes file. And in that file, I'll just like write down, there's no organization at all. There's no rules, there's nothing. It's just like literally anything that seems interesting. I will make a note of it, whether it's I read something and there's like a particular idea or a line or a moment that is there, whether it's uh, someone says something in conversation or I, I remember one example was I was getting out of my car in our driveway and a crow flapped right over my head as I was getting, it was like just this strange moment, right? Where the crow must've been on the ground and was taking flight right as I was stepping out of the car. And so it flew very close to my head. Like it didn't hit my head, but it was like really close. And up close, the sound of its wings had a crackling quality to it. Almost like if you were hearing pork fry. So it was like, it sounded like this crackle flutter. I've never heard a crow fly that close. And I was like, that is weird. Like that, or that's just like, I would never have imagined that that's what it would sound like close up. And so I opened up my little app and I was like the crackle flutter of crow's wings. And I don't know, will that make it into a novel? I have no idea, but like, those are like the weird little anomalies that I like to sort of like pay attention to. And those are equally true emotionally. It's not just the external world, it's also the internal world. But that notes app is also very limited. It's not like that's the material. That's just like funny things that sort of like pop up. But I think that actually our ability to forget is a superpower, right? So when I'm going through my life, just like everyone, I forget way more than 99% of everything that happens to me. And so that is actually a great filter for what's interesting. 
that is actually a super helpful tool as a novelist because it filters out a lot of the things that don't matter. And so whenever I'm writing, almost by definition, anything that I could possibly write has me in it. I wouldn't even know how to write something that didn't. I don't even think it's possible, right? I think I'd be lying to myself if I tried. And so that is the way in which I'm in my writing. So it is not so much that like I see myself as the main character or that I am taking a friend and being like, you're going to be the supporting character or whatever. That's not how I think about it. It's just that by definition, the only stories I can tell are ones born from my experience. Gotcha. So like, does, does the notion of your legacy as Elliot like play into that, into kind of how you show up in your writing? You mean like after I die, will people be reading my books for many centuries and will unfortunate school children be, be forced against their will to write book reports about my novels? Yeah, so, yeah. and I'll frame it slightly because thinking, so I have two boys that are five and eight, right? Yeah. And I think about legacy often in the sense that if something were to happen to me tomorrow, mm -hmm. I would have wanted to leave them a few breadcrumbs that when mm. they're older, and if they wanted to, right, because you don't sure, want to sure. force someone to, to embark on that kind of discovery. <laughs> but if they wanted to kind of get to know more of their dad and the nuance that they probably don't pick up now, not for lack of visibility, but just for lack of life experience and vocabulary, but mm -hmm. then they would be able to do that. So mm -hmm. that's something that is it that just that I think about often is, you know, that legacy and literally the breadcrumbs that I leave around for those that want to kind of without my presence, whether it's after my death, that's a moot point for me, but without my presence, like can someone learn more about who AD actually is? Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I think that I frame it slightly differently for myself, but I think the results are probably the same. And so the way I frame it to myself is I always try to write the best story I possibly can. And rather than framing it as a legacy thing, like if I'm gone, will these sort of stand in my stead? Like what is that, that, that is there, like the pyramids or something? I think of it as, how can I make the greatest contribution I can to other people, whether it's while I'm here or after I'm gone, right? So it's sort of, there's no, I don't see a big distinction. It's just like, how can I make the best thing I can possibly make? I really firmly believe that sort of art is anything made with care and that often the more care we put into things, that's what makes them special. That's what makes them ours. But it's also what makes the thing a contribution to others, right? Like you say you were making a new website and like the only thing you're paying attention to is like gaming SEO. You're not making a contribution. You're just trying to game a system. And that doesn't mean that you can't do SEO right. It just means that you want to make your thing with as much care as possible because we have many billions of people on this planet now. So how can each of us create, you know, a contribution to each other? And I very much do see my novels as my best work in the sense that like, I, I try to make them my best work. Every single time I write a new novel, I am trying to start from scratch. I'm trying to leverage everything I've learned before, but not let it be a constraint, right? Like trying to push my own boundaries so that I can try to deepen my own craft and in doing so, be able to create things that connect people and that connect with people. 
So yes, I think that uh, when I think about legacy, I think about it as contribution, but like probably in many ways, those really wind up getting you past the same finish line. I love that, by the way. I love the notion of, you know, kind of art and making something that's with care and something that one truly cares about. I, I was wondering, as you said that, Elliot, like how, because you specifically mentioned art and doing that, how do you contrast or compare that with, let's call it your professional work as a consultant, as an operator? Because many people would often put those things in different buckets, like art versus mm. whatever else they want to call this capitalistic pursuit. Like, is there a difference for you? How do you think about that? I mean, I try to bring as little difference to the table as possible. I actually feel that this specific thing we've just been talking about, this idea that if you're going to do something, do it extremely well, right? Like if you're not gonna bring that level of attention or care to something, don't bother, right? Like just don't do that at all. So either do something extremely well or don't do it at all. So in a way that that could crop up with a company would be, What's an easy example? Okay, so say like you make some new kind of software and it's it's a very technically sophisticated product. Multiple of your founders are like PhD computer scientists, right? It's it's just, it's right there at the cutting edge and it's super awesome. And like, obviously it's built with an enormous amount of care. Years of people's lives have been put into developing it. And then you're like, we should have a blog, shouldn't we? <laughs> right? Like on our website, like, like companies have blogs, right? Like we should have a blog. <laughs> and uh, it's not that you shouldn't have a blog, but if, whenever I'm talking to a company that's in that kind of position, like if, if, you know, that's our theoretical proposition, it'd be like, well, first of all, no, don't bother having a blog. Or if you're going to have a blog, you need to treat your blog as the same level of work as you treat the software you're working on. So if you are willing to bring that level of care and effort to composing essays, basically, then maybe it's worthwhile, but only if we can make your time balance out. But if you're just gonna slapdash it off and like hire a content freelancer to just like post multiple posts per week because that's how you're gonna get the highest conversion rate on email traffic, you know, like, no, don't do that, right? Do it only if you're going to, like anything you do is an example of who you are and what you're striving for. So make sure that you're bringing the different things you choose to do to the level of attention, effort, care, and contribution that you want to offer. Yeah. So you just mentioned at the end there, attention, care, contribution, right? Which, mm. and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but sounds like, I mean, those are, for example, values that you hold dearly. And, and it's evident listening to you speak, Elliot, that you, there's a lot of conviction and extended thought that has gone into this, right? You're eloquent in speaking about these things. I'm, I'm wondering, like, would you classify those as values firstly? And secondly, I wonder, can you take us back to like the first time that you really had that clarity, like, this is a thing, like, this is what Elliot Pepper stands for. Care, contribution, attention, like, this is what I'm going to try and promote and try and pursue in just my everyday kind of doings. See, I don't know if that's how I actually see myself. When I think about the story I tell myself about myself, it has a bit of a different angle to it. I often like to see myself as someone stumbling off of a plane into a foreign country where they don't speak the language, right? So where you're suddenly in this new world 
and you have to figure out how the world works and how it's going on and who's doing what. Or, you know, another way you could frame it is like an alien suddenly wakes up on Earth and has to sort of like figure out how everything works. I really love the feeling of new worlds opening up before me and needing to explore them, whether that's by opening a book, which I get that feeling from a lot, or literal travel or explore or like meeting very different kinds of people and like having very different life experiences that I haven't explored before. And that's really because I think I like that feeling that you're on the verge of something, that the world is more complicated and more wondrous than you previously thought, right? That there are all these like hidden levels to things or just like different, like many different things going on that you can never fully conceptualize. And so I don't really see myself as someone who has a set of values that I am then trying to promote or to articulate, right, to, to the world. I certainly learn lessons as I'm going through this and like I try to share them. So maybe that's how I'm sort of intellectualizing it. But when I think about how I see myself, it's as an explorer, basically. It, and so to the extent that I'm seeing myself as a teacher, right, which is sort of where those values could come in, it's really that I see myself maybe as a fellow student or a fellow traveler. Like, oh, cool. Hey, look what I just found. Look what I just learned. I think that's how I sort of uh, maybe make sense of it <laughs> internally, if that helps. So saying like being a fellow student, right, or mm. explorer, those are labels or some kind of umbrella term for something that has more definition, right? So a note that I have here, for example, your Twitter bio just says novelist, right? Mm. So I'm wondering then if it's not necessarily values, like if the story is first for you and the story is that, you know, just as you learn those lessons and you relay stories, like that is also just the evolution, the journey here. Mm -hmm. But labels are more fixed in, in nature and they also have different connotations to it, right? They, they could be polarizing or just at least sure. mean different things for different people, right? Whereas a story, if someone listened to a complete story, they would get all angles on that story. Like they should sure, get a more sure. realistic view at least, right? So how do you think about those labels. And specifically, I said, like, why stick to a label novelist on a Twitter bio then? <laughs> That's something I've always struggled with, honestly. So one of the reasons why labels are helpful is just they help other people orient, right? A good example that I actually have to deal with all the time is genre in fiction. You have to choose a genre for your books. But like when I write books, I don't think about genre. I don't think I'm going to write a murder mystery. I just think I'm writing a story. And I found that most writers are like me in, in the sense that it's not certainly not universally true, but many writers don't think about themselves as genre specific. They think about writing a story that means something to them. But then after that story has been written, after that piece of art has been made, it becomes a product and that product needs to be marketed and sold. And in order to be marketed and sold, you put it into marketing categories, which is what genre is, right? So that's why sometimes you'll find, if you've ever read Murakami, he writes this sort of like magical realism, right? Like, like that could be in the fantasy aisle, right? That could be next to 
Game of Thrones, right? Or, but, but it's actually in like the literature, right? There's like all of these books where you could easily think, whoa, oh, okay, that could actually like be in many different places, but publisher has chosen to put it here because that's how they're going to market the book. And so I sort of think that, I mean, this may be reductive, but I basically think just like 1Q84, many of us have many different identities all the time. And so when I'm figuring out what to put on my Twitter bio, it's not a question of trying to holistically capture everything that is me. It is a question of what makes sense for other people to see as a tag to help them make sense of how I use Twitter, right? Like if I just put human being as my Twitter bio, it's not going to be very informative, right? Like it's not really going to help someone figure out, oh, should I follow this person or how might I engage with this person or, or whatever? And so I think about that from like a pretty utilitarian perspective. And even so, I find it difficult, right? Because I work on like a bunch of weird different projects and I sort of always have, and I like doing that because it's a great opportunity for learning. It also makes it pretty hard to describe. If someone asks me what I do in a dinner conversation and they say like, what is your job? That's a question I have frequently struggled to answer because I do a lot of different things, but they want to be able to communicate more with me. They're asking that question because they're interested in learning something about me that we can explore together in conversation. And so I usually answer through a story. So I might say, maybe I'd lead with the novels and, and tell them a story about writing the most recent book. Or, you know, if they had already been talking about their business background, I might lead with a story of, of something interesting that I learned on the consulting side. So I guess my kind of follow up there, at least, because what I heard you saying was essentially pick a label for the context or for the purpose that is that context, right? So as you said on Twitter, like you yeah. identify as a novelist because that's how you use Twitter. So you're essentially signaling for someone else, like this is who I am and this is how you can thus orientate yourself yes. to my Twitter usage. What I wonder is like, has that ever been limiting? Like, have you ever felt like this is limiting or had an experience where you felt like, because I've sent out that signal into the world, this engagement interaction opportunity that popped up was limiting as a result or tainted because of that? Mm. So I've actually sort of found the opposite, which is that I struggle so much with labels because I have a deep fear, a deep-seated fear of limiting myself and of limiting others. And so because I have that just simmering anxiety about it, it's really hard for me when I sit down to write a bio on my website or write the bio on Twitter or when someone asks me that question directly. And I found that I think that fear is often misplaced because I know myself that no label could contain all of the different things that I am. But my fear stems from the fact that I must be mapping that onto others, right? So if other people are describing themselves with a label, am I then neglecting the fact that they are so much more than that label? And if I don't neglect that, then what am I afraid of, right? Like, there's no problem there. And so I've actually found that although I find it deeply uncomfortable, often when I am more specific, 
it's helpful for other people and it's helpful for me and it leads to more unforeseen opportunities for collaboration or connection because we had somewhere specific to start. So this is actually like a really big thing in, in writing as well that, that I've learned from like a craft perspective is that specific things are interesting, right? Like if you just say really general or generic things, it's harder for you to get your own perspective or your own voice into them. It's not as naturally interesting. So if you start with something specific, then you can go from there to something universal, right? So let's say you think friendship is really important, right? If you just said friendship is really important, you're not gonna get very far, right? I mean, you're not wrong, but it's not gonna capture many people's interest or attention or like lead to much. But if you told a really fascinating story about someone we were talking about, right now, I'm reading a book by Michael Lewis that's about Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, these two psychologists that reshaped how we think humans behave across many disciplines. And Michael Lewis's book is about their friendship these two scientists' friendship and how their friendship changed how we think about thinking, right? And it's fascinating, right? But like Michael Lewis doesn't just say, hey, friendship is important and like sometimes you can make things with friends that matter, right? No, he writes a whole book about Danny and Amos and how weird they are and all the fights they had and, and you know, like all of the strange, goofy, idiosyncratic things that came of it. And then we realize through experiencing that story and he can get to a place in the story where we see that friendship is important, except we are realizing it as if it is within ourselves rather than just like someone else saying a truism. And so I think that like many, you know, you were asking about principles and values before. And I think that basically there's nothing new there in the sense that Everything that is a value, like a human value, is something that humans have grappled with since long before recorded history. And so those things are universal. Like there are these like universal themes in human life, but the way to get to them is to start with specificity. And so I've often found in my own life that even though it frustrates me to no end, many of like the most interesting relationships or collaborations or projects I've had have come in a very weird way. And I can actually give you an example of one that I'm working on right now. That's a, a pretty good example of this. So we'll start specific and go to the general. So I'll practice what I preach here. So last year, or I guess a little bit over a year ago, last March, I was invited to speak at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas about science fiction. So, you know, it was just because of my books, I was invited to be on a couple of panels there and it was tremendous fun. They had actually, the organizer had rented a house in Austin where like the sci-fi people attending the conference could stay together. So it was actually really fat. Like, you know, a bunch of people came through. Bruce Sterling, who I don't know if you've ever read his books. He was like one of the founders of Cyberpunk with William Gibson. And he like lives in Turin, Italy. So it's rare to get, you know, to hang out with him. So just like loads of people. Actually the star, I can't remember the actor's name, but the star of Ready Player One was there. You know, so it was like, it was really fun. It was this like 
just like a cool house. And we went and we gave these talks and they were well-received. And then shortly thereafter, I got an email follow-up from a founder who was like, oh, you know, I really enjoyed hearing you talk about science fiction. And I wanted to see if I could get your two cents on something we're building. And so I wound up talking to him a few times last year and what they're building, talk about the product of a friendship. Don Burke, who's a leading epidemiologist. So he has been one of the people on the forefront of studying viral outbreaks since AIDS and HIV, and has a long, very deep friendship with John Greffenstedt, who's a leading academic computer scientist. And for the past 12 years, they've been building a platform that allows you to build epidemiological models. So it's an agent-based platform, which basically allows you to build these models of the world to ask questions like, what happens if we do X, right? So in the US right now with coronavirus, it's like a lot of governors and mayors are saying like, well, how do we change the social distancing rules, right? In ways that allow the economy to ramp up a little bit without creating a huge caseload in hospitals? Those are really hard questions, right? There's never a right answer. There's only you're trying to get a better answer. And they've been working for over a decade on this system that allows you to simulate the impacts of those kinds of questions. And they've published tons of papers in all the leading journals looking at many different epidemics that have happened with their model. And just two years ago, they spun out this piece of software into a startup. And so I was talking to the founder all last year and he gave me a call maybe six weeks ago and was like, look, like we are so overwhelmed with work now, right? Like, I mean, obviously they did not know coronavirus was coming. And so now it's like an all hands on deck situation where, you know, they're helping governor's offices and stuff like that and, and healthcare companies to figure out how to respond and to try to make better decisions when you're in the midst of this deep uncertainty. And so I basically came on about a month ago to help them be in more hands on deck, to help them start to ramp up their operations and grow that. And that's been enormously rewarding. I've been really, really impressed with their team. I've already learned so much in you know the past month of working with them, but that would never have happened if I hadn't written a science fiction novel that didn't get me to South by where I had no idea this guy was in the audience. You know what I mean? Like none of those connect or they all connect, but in ways I could never have foreseen. And so the way that I try to make sense of that when I move forward, when I understand that all of these nonlinear connections are possible and that I can't predict them, then the only thing left is what we talked about before, which is whatever I choose to do, make it as good as possible, because that might be a starting point for someone else to discover an opportunity for collaboration. That's awesome, by the way. And you know what, in a very unplanned roundabout way, I think what you described there, the notion, and, and just to give some resonance here, I've often thought about the labels that I've used myself as mm. an entrepreneur. And sometimes there have been that burden where I've mm -hmm. felt it's hard to do other things. Yeah. But often <laughs> it's more been similar to your story, which is mm. the label doesn't matter that much. Like if one is specific and one can use whatever platform one has to tell a story, you know, and putting oneself out there, even in an imperfect way, even in just the kind of just me being myself way, that is what opens up the doors to potential opportunities. So that's something that's likely 
resonates with many listeners here as well, right? That's probably that first step of how I put myself out there and in which way I put myself out there, whether it's myself or the thing I'm making. But getting over that and starting to tell those stories, sharing those stories is what opens up the door for those collaborations, for those new experiences. And it sounds like that's a big part of the reason why you are starting to do this podcast. Yeah, exactly, right? So for me, what I am trying to kind of you know, get to, and again, like it's great that we stumbled into this conversation or part of the conversation towards the end, right? Which is, is all of our understanding how different people in different modalities ultimately think about how they present themselves to the world, how they put themselves right. out in the world. Because my kind of notion of self, at least, is email marketing, for example, is not my life's work, but the full story around my recent startup, which did email marketing, like mm -hmm. there is parts of me in that. Like yeah. I am showing up in those you know, spaces. Mm -hmm. Again, gut feel here is I think doesn't really matter what the thing is we're making, like people that show up, put themselves out there. I'm curious to know kind of where those similarities are and where the differences are between when we and how we show up. Writing a novel or a poem or building email marketing software or skyscraper, right? Or whether you are working in a nursing home, bringing that level of care is really ultimately the thing that matters because as we talked about in the conversation, like that's your opportunity to contribute. Yeah, totally. Cool. If anyone here wants to learn more about your story and read the stories you tell, where can they find out more about Elliot Pepper? Just go to my name.com, elliotpepper.com. You can find everything there. But probably the best place to start is my books. Um, I think they really are my best work. I would start there. Uh, my latest one is called Veil. So that could be a good place to start or really anyone that seems interesting to you. And then you can follow me down all the dark corners of the internet. As we already talked about, I'm active on Twitter. So that's an easy one too, if you want to read very, very short sentences from me. <laughs> Thanks again for being here. Thanks for sharing your story with our listeners today. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Awesome. Thanks, Idiot. Cheers. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me on. You had great questions. That's it for me for today's episode. If anything in today's conversation really resonated with you, please do send me an email on ad at lifeprofitability.com. That's A-D-I-I at lifeprofitability.com. You can also leave a review on iTunes, which helps me to improve the show and perhaps also helps me to reach someone else that needs to hear this or might find this helpful. I'll be back here with another great guest next week. Cheers. Cheers.